Good morning. <laughs> well, if I did not greet you in the last hour, I bring you greetings from our nation's capital. Uh, back in our church, Emmanuel Bible Church, uh, they are in their second service uh, this morning. And uh, for those of you who were not there first hour, I, I say Emmanuel Bible Church, we, we are located right outside of Washington, D.C., and we are a bedroom community for those that work on Capitol Hill, all areas of the government, of the Pentagon, the military, and, and so on. And so we are a church we often say is a church we like to say that we're influencing those who have influence, and that's our, really our, our focus as well. Uh, by God's great providence, we have been going through a series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And leading up to the election, uh, you do know there was an election a couple of weeks ago. That wasn't just in Washington, I guess. Um, but uh, up, leading up to that, we were, we were focusing on a couple of verses. And again, I think it was just God's timing, God's planning uh, to focus on these verses in Matthew chapter 5. And in two of these early verses of this powerful Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed the crowds with words that resonated loudly with those that were hearing, but I think it resonates pretty loudly with us today, especially in light of our desire to live a godly life in a godless society and culture that surrounds us. So here's the verses that we studied back then, and we'll springboard from them today. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read them for you in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 11 and 12. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He continued, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. He didn't say on earth. He said your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we have come to discover, whether it was the first century where Jesus uttered these words, or now the 21st century, those of us who desire or attempting to follow Jesus, we, we seem to be inviting unwanted scrutiny and, and pressure and in some cases, even persecution. But as Jesus points out in these two verses here, we're, we're in good company, because even the prophets experienced that pushback in, in their day. And the reward, he said, is not here on earth, but the reward is in heaven, and it will far exceed the troubles that we have for today. Now, having read just these two verses in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's fifth gospel, I, I would submit that if there was a prequel to that, if there was an Old Testament passage that really spoke to the same theme and, and focused us on how we are to deal with persecution in our day, I think we will find that in the book of Psalms and Psalm 11. So, if you have a Bible within, I hope that you do, open with me to that book, the book of Psalms, and put a placeholder somewhere near Psalm 11. The book of Psalms and focus on Psalm 11. Psalm 11 gives hope for the accused, the attacked, uh, 
the pursued, the persecuted, and the prosecuted. Psalm 11 contains faith's response to fear's counsel. Psalm 11 expresses the necessity and the benefit of having vertical vision while living among the troubles of this horizontal culture and world in which we live. Psalm 11 encourages us to look up when the problems of this world which surround us would have us and bring us down. We don't know exactly why David wrote this Psalm 11. Some have speculated that he was in the midst of being pursued by King Saul, who sought to kill him eventually, and also for being pursued by his son Absalom, who sought to kill him. We're not sure why David wrote this, but what we can be sure of, however, is that this psalm comes at a desperate moment in the life of King David, when his enemies seem to be closing in on him, and his so-called well-intentioned friends encouraged him to flee, to run away, to leave. Nonetheless, in these seven verses of this very short psalm, you and I today will be tasked with asking and answering this pointed and personal question that's laid out in verse 3, and here is the question. David writes, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let me repeat that. The question is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can we, the righteous, do? In other words, what shall the redeemed of the Lord do when the once good and ethical laws of our society that we have known are no longer upheld, and when morality becomes diluted, and when evil seems to forge on unchecked? Uh, What shall we do when the Bible is undermined and the teachings of the Bible are disregarded, and when some churches and even denominations are caving to the culture and changing their doctrine and their theology and taking on more secularism and are influenced to change their doctrine and, and their theology to keep up with and be encompassed by the culture? What shall we do when even family values seem to be crumbling, thereby inflicting catastrophic damage on perhaps the most innocent of ours, our children, by way of their school system? What can we do when everything around us seems to be giving way, or as is written in Isaiah chapter 5, when evil is thought to be good and good is thought to be evil? When darkness is now thought of as light, and light is thought to be dark. When bitterness is passed off as sweet, and sweet is now thought to be bitter. What shall we, the righteous, do when loud, irreverent, secular, self-gratifying, and often evil voices in our culture are undergirded, championed, and often funded by societal and governmental support, encouragement, protection, and often even promotion. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
You and I know when a nation celebrates what God condemns, judgment from on high must eventually come. Our God has been so patient, has he not? No one could say how or when or where the judgment will come, but as certain as God responded to the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah, as certain as great nations and empires of history in their arrogance have fallen, then we know that no nation or no people will escape God's judgment, not even here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. As the redeemed of the Lord, as we just consider the challenges and the resistance that we face because of our beliefs, some would suggest that we hide or take on total isolation. Perhaps we should fill buses and head to Lancaster, Pennsylvania and join the Amish, or maybe become part of some kind of a Hasidic Jewish sect where we completely isolate ourselves from the world. But that's not what David did when he was surrounded and received pushback from his beliefs. David's response, his only response, was to look up and to take refuge in the Lord. David displayed vertical vision in the face of the evils of this horizontal world. So as David spoke to his well-intentioned friends, our Psalm 11 text reads as follows. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Then there seems to be a long pregnant pause. At least we can picture this as David is responding to his friends where you can just imagine him looking his friends in the eye and picking it up what he says here in verse 4. David said, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. What a powerful text this is here that David has given us. Again, although we don't know exactly what prompted David to write this psalm, whether or not he was fleeing from Saul or Absalom, I believe the message here in this psalm 
is not limited by David's historical circumstances because the central issue of what David experienced and what you and I are experiencing is simply the oppression of the upright by the wicked. You and I will continue to increase in experiencing this oppression by the upright, by the wicked. Whenever and wherever evil seems to triumph, God's people can take heart in the attitude reflected here in this psalm by King David. Despite the chaotic swirl around him in the horizontal plane, David's assurance was vertical in God and God alone. If we start at look at where it starts here, right in verse 1, as we look in verse 1, right from the start of this psalm, and we haven't even heard from his friends yet, quote-unquote friends, we can surmise that David's confidence, it seems to be grounded in years of walking with his God. Look what he says. He boldly says in the first part of this psalm, he says, in the Lord, in the Lord, I take refuge. Yes, the journey and the, diff- and the destination may be difficult at times, but you and I should not be surprised as David was not surprised. Did not Jesus warn his disciples and warn us in John chapter 16? Jesus said, in this world, in the world in which we are living right now, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And David knew that. And he obviously had had difficulty in this world before, but he had seen God show up in his difficulty. And thus in verse 1, he says, In the Lord I take refuge. God had not failed him in the past, and he knew that God would not fail him now. Thus in every moment of distress and in every moment, David took refuge in the comfort of the Lord's presence. You know, as a kid growing up on Long Island, we often would travel to New York City to visit both sets of my grandparents. And we would drive through some very difficult areas of Brooklyn, some very dangerous neighborhoods in Brooklyn. But to be honest with you, perhaps I was not aware all of the danger that was around us, but I was aware of the person that was driving the car. And that was my dad. My dad was fearless. My dad was committed. My dad was wise. My dad was strong. My dad was powerful. It also helped that my dad was a New York City cop with a gun. (laughs) But in my father, I took refuge. My dad had never failed me before, and I knew at that moment in the dangerous parts of New York City that he would not fail us then. I can agree with what David says here, relate to the confidence that David had, and he expressed because of who he claimed that his father was. But look at verse 1. As confident as David was in his heavenly father and his ability to protect him, David was just as amazed and even disappointed in his well-intentioned friends Perhaps it seems from the Scripture here that he was even deeply offended, insulted even to the point of remarking 
that it says, in the Lord I took refuge. How can you say to my soul? How can you offend me so, so much to my soul? David almost was indignant when he was responding to his friends. His well-intentioned friends had encouraged him to run, to flee, flee like a bird. It's an expression really in the Hebrew that makes, to make a quick escape. You need to leave right now, David. And then the next couple of verses here, his friends kind of lay out their facts or what they considered to be facts as to why they told David to flee. First of all, in verse 2, they said, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready the arrow of the string. They're basically telling David that they think the attack against him is imminent. We would say today that there's somebody that's holding a gun to your head and they've got the the trigger is about to be pulled. The, The gun is cocked and ready to go off. You talk about a cancel culture. You see here that David was about to be eliminated because he didn't agree with other people. Isn't that what we're experiencing today as well? Secondly, in verse 2, continues with his friend's report that the wicked, they lurk and work in the dark. Isn't that how evil works? They think they can do their dastardly acts without the, out of the sight of God and they can get away with whatever they want. And David's friends are warning him that the wicked are working in the dark. They're They're about to attack you. You won't be able to fend off against them. And lastly, David's friend told him in verse 3 that all the foundations are destroyed. All the foundations are destroyed. We don't know if this is actually true or it's some kind of an exaggeration. But they remind David that all that he thought was true and trustworthy had been torn down. What once was right was now wrong, and what was once thought as wrong is now applauded as right. It's like what was written throughout the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's very much what you and I are experiencing today in the, in the culture that surrounds us. So when the foundations are destroyed, David, like us, had two choices— What can the righteous do? There are only two kinds of responses that you can make when the foundations are destroyed. You're either going to fight or you're going to flee. You're either going to run or you're going to resist. You're either going to get out or dig in. You're either going to retreat or fully rely on God. The question David had to answer, what would he do? And really the question is, what will you and I do as well? And before we go on, Let's remember that biblical history often paints a dim picture of those who choose to run and to flee. Think about King Saul himself. He was running and fleeing from God himself, and David's, Saul's fear that David would somehow take his throne and bring his dreams to a, a crashing end that led King Saul to anger and to violence and ultimately the depression and mental illness. And how about Jonah, when God told him to stay and and preach and and redeem and transform Nineveh? But Jonah fled from God twice. Let's not forget also our New Testament hero, a man by the name of Peter, 
in Matthew chapter 16, told Jesus, no, you won't go to the cross. I won't allow it. To that response, Jesus said, get ye behind me, Satan. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We fight or flee or retreat or will we fully rely on God? And I would submit that at this point in the message, at this point in the text, we, we must look internally and really think, how does this impact us? What's the application for us? What will we do? Because we are facing some difficult things in front of us, are we not? This is not doomsday speak, but just let me list out a few of the things that we are struggling with right now. And we have to make a decision whether or not we will run or we're going to fight. We have the celebration of transgenderism in our culture all around us. The promotion and the protection of the same-sex marriage. The protesting and threatening of those who are pro-life and want to protect the unborn. We have those that are called to defund the police, and there seems to be a complete lack of social discourse and interaction with one another. We're seeing really what the Apostle Paul has laid out in Romans chapter 1, that we are now, God is giving us over to our most dishonorable and unspeakable passions. And so the question is still really before us, if the foundations fall, our foundations are destroyed, then what will the righteous do? What should the righteous do? And as I look out here among all of you, I'm sure there are many of you are part of the foundations of our society. You're perhaps in the educational system or the medical system, or you're serving in the government, you're serving in the military. And my guess would be that every one of you who knows Jesus and is led by the Holy Spirit, those words of quit and flee and run are not ever in your vocabulary. And may your tribe increase, amen? May your tribe increase. And obviously in your quiet time, as you read in Psalm 11, you have adjusted your life and lifestyle because you eventually got to verse 4 and you followed exactly what David decided he would do. Because in verse 4, we see just what David did. When he was faced with the crumbling foundations and strong opposition, he looked above his well-intentioned friends and his ill-intentioned enemies, and he he looked toward the Lord, and he raised his eyes to heaven. And it's there that we're reminded He reminded himself and he reminded us that despite all that's happening around us in the culture and all that we're going through here on earth, that God is still on the throne and he has not gone anywhere. And that God is sitting on the throne and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And just as a sidebar for a second, when we think of that idea of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We think of this, the personal and specific impact of that in our lives. Now, Revelation chapter 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. 
So whatever access that Satan has to the throne room of God, we don't know what he has, but whatever access he has to continue to communicate with our God the Father, he is speaking our names and speaking ill of each one of us, speaking about the sin in our lives and how we are indeed sinners in need of a Savior. That person is a sinner. In that respect, Satan still speaks some modicum of truth because he speaks about how you and I are sinners. But in Hebrews chapter 7, we're told that Jesus, he is the one that stands before the Father, and he is the one that intercedes on our behalf. So you picture Satan is standing before God the Father, speaking our names, but Jesus said, you're right, that person is a sinner, but I died for that person. You're right, that person is a sinner. I died for that person. Who do you have next? Who would we like to discuss, discuss next? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And David continues here then in verse 4. He's speaking about God the Father. His eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord sees and tests the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. I think what David's saying here, when he says the eyes of God see and his eyelids test, is we are undergoing testing right now because of where we were living and the culture with, wind, with which we are living among. And all of the ills and all of the wickedness of the culture, and God is watching the believers. He's watching you, he's watching me to see how we are reacting to the testing that we are going through as a result of the culture. That's what it means, his eyes see, his eyelids. It's like if God had eyelids when he could squint to see very, very carefully how you and I are responding to this. Thus saddled with this question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David answered that the righteous can know that the Lord is testing them. And because a loving God is testing them, they can know that they will not be pushed too far, nor they will ever be forsaken by our God. But at the end of verse 5, look with me. David also tells us that God also sees the deeds of the wicked. Not only is God scrutinizing the deeds of the righteous and to see how we're responding to all of what's going on in the culture, but he's also scrutinizing and sees the deeds of the wicked, and they will not go unpunished. Verse 5 tells us that God hates. I know it's a strong word. God hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, it says God hates that. But just by his holiness, he separates himself from the wicked deeds of those that would seek to do us harm. Just by his nature, he excludes any love for those who love to do us harm and love to do violence. Unless the arrogance of the wicked go unpunished, look in verse 6. Indicates that God prepares his judgments for the wicked. He's preparing judgments for the wicked. Those who seek to do the righteous harm may do so from the shadows, as David's friends reported to him, that they being the attack is coming from the darkness, but God will eventually, and God's timing is his timing, but God will eventually bring all of the deeds of the wicked into the light. 
and he will, as verse 6 says, rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. It's as if David has Sodom and Gomorrah here in mind, complete and utter destruction of the wicked. Their day is coming, and they will receive in full the penalty of their ungodly behavior. But finally, look in verse 7. As David's psalm concludes, we see that just as God has prepared his judgments for the wicked in verse 6, God has also prepared a reward for the upright. We often remark around Easter season how dark Good Friday was, but we say, but Sundays are coming. David was declaring righteous, the righteous character and actions of his God by stating in verse 7, he says, for the Lord is righteous. He's making that statement. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. And he says, the upright shall behold his face. While David's well-intentioned friends pleaded with him to run, to flee, to hide, to run away, David's responded with the reward of those who look up and seek refuge in the righteous God of our universe. Yes, the foundations of the world may be crumbling as you and I look around and look how the culture has fallen. They may be crumbling, but our God is still on the throne, is he not? And has a wonderful plan for those who put their faith and trust in him and him alone. And the Scripture tells us here, the upright, those who by faith have put their trust in God and God alone, they will see his face. Verse 7 says, he loves their righteous deed. The upright shall see his face, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, anytime we look at Scripture, I, I think we need to work carefully to make application of the text. And I think every time we look at the Scripture, we should make application both for the believer and for the non-believer as well. The reason we make application for the believer should be very obvious. I mean, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired of God. God breathed. And it's profitable for four things. All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable, he said, for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training in righteousness. But then he goes on to say in verse 17, so that the man of God, universally speaking, the man and women of God, the body of Christ, may be found to be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so every time we look at the Scripture, all of it inspired, we say, what is the application for my life from the text? What do I learn from this for the believer in Jesus Christ? So we will be equipped, as Paul says in verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3, for every good work. So how do we equip ourselves for that? That's for the believer. But we also have to make the application of the Word of God for the unbeliever. 
And here's why. Because Apostle Paul also wrote the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, it says that the unbelievers are aware of the truth, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. But the fact that they suppress it in unrighteousness doesn't mean it just goes away. When you get your electric bill every month, you can throw that in the trash every month, but that bill, there's a reckoning day that will eventually come for that bill. You must pay it eventually. And for the non-believer, they're aware of the truth, but they often don't apply it, but we must apply it then for them, and we will do that this morning. In fact, what I'd like to do is make application from this text for the unbeliever first and then for the believer, if you'll bear with me. First of all, let's start with the unbeliever. We've been talking about the foundations of the world that are crumbling. The the culture is diminishing around us. Uh, The things of God are no longer respected. The world is really going down very, very quickly, quicker than we can ever remember in at least my lifetime. And so for the unbelievers that are here, let, let me ask you this. Paul speaks to you, I'm sorry, David speaks to you here. He says, your bow is already cocked. You're ready to fire your weapons at the righteous. But let me encourage you just for a season, maybe a small amount of time. I'm not going to ask you to do it every day. But if you're here this morning and there's never a time you put your faith and trust in Christ... Uh, you would fall in the category of the wicked. Uh, That's not my word. You'll have to take it up with David. But you fall in that category. And and you normally walk around with your bow cocked to fire it at the righteous. But let me ask you, just for a season, to put your weapon down and actually have a discourse with a believer and to actually listen to that believer, to see if the things of God written in his word are true, and the believer, as a result of the things of God, that believer is actually genuine. If you're one of those unbelievers, you need to know that there's people actually who love you, despite the fact that you hold a weapon over their head. Let me encourage you to put your weapon down just for a season and to enter a dialogue to see if the things of God are true and the people of God are actually genuine. Number two, application for the non-believer. Let me encourage you not to settle for the things of this world when you can have so much greater in the next. All of the things that you value here in this world are rusting, are inflating, will die or go away, and you'll leave it all behind. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul to the cemetery. You're going to leave it all behind. And so don't cash in all of the things here in life and miss out on what God's got so much better for you in the future. Don't settle for those things that are here on earth when heaven has so much more waiting for you. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, friends, if you're not 
a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are somebody that, again, the Scripture refers to as part of the problem as the wicked, be forewarned. Be forewarned. The Scripture is very clear as to what your reward will be. In fact, you can see it here in verse 6. It says that God is going to rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their, speaking of the wicked, their cup. It's like a cup already engraved with your name on it that God is preparing the punishment that you will receive. Let me see if this helps. You remember the Christmas classic uh, by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. And that mean, evil, wicked Ebenezer Scrooge is, is visited at night by three ghosts. The ghosts of Christmas past, the ghosts of Christmas present, and the ghosts of Christmas yet to come. And remember, Ebenezer Scrooge goes on the ride with these three different ghosts. And remember that last ghost, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. They end up eventually at the cemetery. And what finally gets the attention of Ebenezer Scrooge is as they walk by one of those tombstones and his name is already etched on the stone. Friend, if there's never been a time that you put your faith and trust in Christ... The Scripture says that God is already preparing that cup of punishment for you. Your name is already etched on the side of that cup. That's truth. I have to tell you that truth. Be forewarned. That is what the Scripture says. I don't want you to be unaware. There's a bridge out ahead. You need to take a detour. There needs to be a different way you need to go already etched on that cup. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. You may not know this story, unbeliever, but the night before Jesus died on the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he spoke to, he spoke to his heavenly Father. And he said, my Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, lest I drink it, then may your will be done. The cup he was speaking about is that cup that's etched with your name on it. Because I had one too. Mine was etched with my name on it. And the punishment was planned for me. But I gave that to Jesus and laid it at his feet. And he took my cup that he told the Father he would, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to that cross, he took the cup of my wrath so I didn't have to suffer it. And friend, the same opportunity is for you. There's never been a time that you have put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Not any degrees you have from any universities, not any amount of money you have in the bank account, not any feats of of excellence you've done in this life, but strictly because you realize that you were a sinner, repenting of your sin and give your life over to Christ. If there's never been that time, today is the day of your salvation. Do not accept the cup of the wrath that is already prepared for you when you have the good news of Jesus who willingly will take that as well. And then friends, for the believers in Jesus Christ, I think there's some applications for us here as well. First of all, I would say, when we think about this text and what will happen eventually to the wicked, 
that. The punishing of the wicked is not our responsibility. As believers in Jesus Christ, the punishing of the wicked is not our responsibility. And so be careful as to how you use social media and to be careful of your words and your written words and your actions towards the unbelievers. We are not responsible for their punishment. God has that fully under control. We ought to spend a lot more time rather than criticizing, we ought to be evangelizing, amen? And to use the opportunities that we have not to criticize the wicked, but to make sure we're evangelizing them as much as we can. And secondly, I'd say we need to forget not our own sin. Were it not for the grace of God in our lives, we would be no different than the wicked. That etched cup of punishment would have our names on it still, were it not for the grace of God. We need to remember that. The place of hell is forever. If you've ever been to a funeral, unfortunately, I've had to do some of them where somebody has died and they have completely rejected the gospel their entire lives. Of course, we don't know right before they took their last breath what they did, but their lifestyle seems like they're heading in the wrong direction. What a sad day that is to have that. It's not a celebration of life service because you realize that hell is forever. Somebody that goes to hell will never have a day off a day of vacation, there's no opportunity for parole. There's never going to be a time forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We have an opportunity not to criticize, but to definitely to evangelize them. We ought to be evangelizing as much as we possibly can. Thirdly, thirdly, I would say we need to armor up. We need to armor up, especially in time of this culture that we're in now. We need to armor up. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, the second half of the chapter, and he's speaking about the spiritual warfare that's going on all around us. Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. There's a whole hierarchy of evil, and we are seeing it being unleashed. Before it used to hide in the darkness, now it's present in full light. And we're seeing all of that come to light right in front of us. And we need to armor up. I mean, if it it were flesh and blood, you and I could probably take enough boxing or MMA lessons that we could come in and fight. But the Scripture says it's not a battle of flesh and blood. Otherwise, we could call in all these military weapons, cruise missiles, bring all that in. But it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. And Paul tells us what to do. Armor up. Put on the full armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, shod your feet with the gospel of peace, and then pray. The sword of the Spirit in one hand, and you're praying in the other. But we need to armor up. If you've never been in combat before, welcome aboard. You're in it now. If you haven't looked at the agendas of the the two parties in our country, Welcome aboard. You're in full combat right now. If you look and predict the things of the future, welcome aboard. We are at war, and we need to armor up. Location, location, location is important. We've got to remember that this place here that we are, although we're fighting this battle in the middle of the culture, This is not our home. Hallelujah, this is not our home. When my wife and I first got married, we had a child within the first year of our marriage. 
And the three of us were in this very small, cramped apartment out in San Diego, California. We were able to scrape enough money together to buy this very, very small starter home. And I remember almost every day we went to the home site where it was being built, and we watched all the studs and the piping and the wiring going in. We watched everything. We stopped thinking about decorating and fixing and all the things with the apartment because this was going to be our home. And friends, the place that we're living here is not our home. John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. There where I will be, you will be with me also. This place, as nice as it is here in Omaha, it's not our home. We can't forget that. We got to expect that this wickedness of this world, the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, is Satan. And so the God of this world is leading this world down as quickly as he can get it. But this is not our home. We're thankful for that. And then lastly, I would submit that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to foster a fresh view of God and a long view of history. When Moses was in the middle of all of the swirl of sin with the nation of Israel, all of the things that were happening, despite God providing manna in the desert and water and quail and that their clothes didn't wear out and the the promise of the promised land coming before them, despite all of that, there was the swirl of the nation of Israel And God would call Moses out of that up vertically to the mountain. We've got to remember a long view of God and remember that he has always been faithful to those that he has called to himself. God's faithfulness will never, ever end towards the believers in Jesus Christ. For that, I am eternally grateful. Despite the difficulty that we live in, despite the swirl around us in this horizontal world, we as believers need to live vertically and remember who God is and what he continues to do for his elect, for those that have been called to himself. And so really it brings us to the end of of our applications and our study of this, and back right to the question in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's been our question we've had to wrestle with. What can we do if the foundations are destroyed? Well, when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you realize the faithfulness of Almighty God. It kind of changes that question. It's not if the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can't the righteous do? Jesus made these words clear in his Sermon of the Mount. I read them at the beginning. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Father, that's our desire, is to to live under this umbrella of what Jesus has explained here in 
the Sermon on the Mount, to live under the umbrella of what David has explained in Psalm 11, that when the foundations seem to be crumbling, and they do in this world, that we are called to look up and to seek you vertically, that relationship that we have and continue to foster with you. That would be our desire, Lord. And I pray if there's any here today among us who who fall in that category of the unsaved, the wicked, Lord, I pray that you'll give them no rest. I pray you'll keep them up at night, every night, wrestling with their need for salvation, to have them understand of what would be coming their way should they turn their back forever on you. And then, Lord, would you, you receive them in your presence. We look forward to the day that we will see you face to face to thank you for what you have done and will continue to do our lives. For the glory of God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.